When my son had the opportunity to begin learning an instrument in fifth grade, he decided that he was going to choose the trumpet. I, having played percussion throughout my school years and on past my school years, was really hoping that he would choose the drums, but no, he decided, he was adamant, that he was going to learn the trumpet. He did pretty well in fifth grade, as fifth grade first year trumpet players are concerned. He, he did okay, he, he practiced, he seemed to enjoy it. And then close to the end of his fifth grade year, he was told by one of his directors that they were going to switch him over to the baritone, a deeper brass instrument, not quite a tuba, but nevertheless a, a, a lower register instrument with certain comparable fingerings to the trumpet. And so he switched over to that in sixth grade, and he has been playing it ever since. So the time came for him to enter high school. He is a ninth grader this year. And, of course, part of that has entailed joining the marching band. This is our first year as you would expect, him being a ninth grader, of being marching band parents. And I, I loved marching band throughout my high school years. Along with theater, it was probably one of the two activities that got me through those four years of ridiculous social rules and continuing to figure out who I was in a sea of judgment and hormones. And so I was fine with being on this side of it, trying to help contribute to that experience for someone else. And I was excited to see how things would play out for him. Well, it turns out that marching band is a very different experience from the parental side. There are things that I just must have blocked out in terms of what my parents had to do carting me all over the place to fulfill different scheduling commitments that I had as a member of the marching band. We began practices, we began band camp starting in late July. Do you remember when kids actually had the full summer to do non-school things, like an actual summer break? I do. I'm not sure any kid today knows what that experience is like anymore. Get off my lawn. Anyway, 
So Bandcamp began in mid-July, and it went up till the start of the school year, and then it continued with several after-school practices, several evening practices, and then there were the extra performances. Not just Friday football games, but there would be various things that the band had to play at in addition to those. There was a community tailgate. There was a concert for anyone who wished to see the band in action. There was a concert just for the parents. There were other things that the band had to do in addition to their regular game performances. And so, as a parent now, I first have to appreciate all the time and all the driving around that my parents had to do during those years for me. I do not particularly resent having to do this. For him, I, I know that it is worth it in terms of his own growth, his own socialization, and so on. And so I am happy to take him wherever he needs to go in order to play his baritone again. Now, over the weeks, my son has picked up preferences of his own. Preferences that differ from mine. For instance, there are t at least two routes that can be taken to the high school when it's time for me to drop him off for pregame practices or to get on the bus for an away game. There is what I'll call the more scenic route, which takes us past fields of corn and places where we can drive past cows grazing. It is more scenic, but it also features less traffic and less stoplights. And so I prefer this way for those reasons. However, the other way, which does have more traffic, and which does have more stoplights, at least from my son's perspective, is faster, is more direct. It takes us right up to the parking lot where he needs to be dropped off. And at least in his mind, it is quicker. I have never actually taken the time to time it one way or the other, to measure the distance in mileage. But to me, the one way is faster. To him, the other way is faster. Neither route necessarily gets us there that much sooner. It's just that for each of us, we have certain ideas of why each way is better. But neither way is necessarily wrong. 
there are other methods that his band uses that are markedly different from when I was in school. And really, for the most part, those can probably just be chalked up to be me being a grumpy middle-aged guy now. Oh, you know, for instance, band camp starting in mid-July instead of, you know, having a real summer break. I think my band camp started maybe two weeks before school and it wasn't nearly as extensive as what his has been. I can I can list a whole a whole list of differences in that way. Neither one is necessarily wrong. Neither approach is necessarily inferior or superior to the others, although I probably could point out some differences in quality between the results in my marching band and the results in his. His is way better. But nevertheless, his directors and my directors have taken different approaches. Neither one of them necessarily wrong. Each of them based on a different series of experiences and ideas and philosophies. Neither one of them necessarily getting us to the destination that much quicker or in that much of a better time but nevertheless it remains that there is one or more than one way to get there welcome to the coffee house contemplative podcast When I sat down to write my first book, Coffeehouse Contemplative, Spiritual Direction for the Everyday, I was struggling to figure out what to, what to do first. And really, as I've said in previous episodes, what you do first in order to write a book is you sit your butt in the chair and you start typing. Well, I, I, I knew that idea, as all writers really do, but for some reason I was having issues of what would happen beyond that. I had a, a vague outline of what the book would entail, but for some reason, I couldn't actually make myself begin to do it. Until late one evening, I was lying in bed, and I was struggling with sleep. It's, it's an insomnia thing. It has visited me 
too often. But anyway, I couldn't sleep. I could not rest my mind enough in order to go off into dreamland. And so I decided I would get up and I would go downstairs and I would write something. And so I did. I went down, I sat my butt in the chair and I opened my laptop and I started to write about a dream that I had when I was around 12 years old. It was a dream that I had about Jesus. The only dream that I have ever had. Again, I'm 43. This is the single dream that I can ever remember having about Jesus. He is sitting in my grandparents' dining room, and he is surrounded by children. And I approach him, and all he says to me is, Jeff, there is so much on your mind. Again, I was 12, and this is what Jesus says to me. And then I wake up. That's the extent of it. There... There wasn't anything else. There was no follow-up. Jesus didn't give me any advice for whatever was on my mind at the time. That that was that was it. So so I wrote about this dream and I, I wrote some follow-up comments about this dream, some follow-up reflections that would tie into the chapter that this dream sequence, this narrative, this recounting would be used for. And the accounting of that dream can be found in chapter 3 of my book. I didn't start at chapter 1. I didn't start at the introduction. The very first thing I wrote for that book doesn't appear until chapter 3. The entire book would be written like that. And I've actually written every book that I've written like that. Maybe chapter 3 first, then maybe chapter 7, then maybe chapter 9, and then chapter 2. It never goes exactly sequentially in order, which I also think is a common approach that authors and writers take to their work. It's certainly approach that those who make movies and TV shows take. The first scene that you see in your favorite show or movie was likely not the very first scene that they shot. But it could have been. And maybe if needs were different, production was different, Budgets were different. Schedules were different. Maybe they could have. But instead, it ended up being the way that they actually did it. And, and similarly, if inspiration had been different, if insomnia had visited me on a different night, if inspiration had hit me in a different way, maybe I would have started at chapter 1 but I have never started at chapter one. Maybe other authors are actually capable of doing 
that kind of thing. But I am not one of them. There is more than one approach to pretty much everything. There's more than one path to take in order to get to the same destination. As much as we would love for whatever process that we take to be very linear in nature, and we try to make things as linear as we can, it, it is, there, there's a comfort to it, isn't there? Because that way we know what happens next. We know that what step one is, and that step one needs to be step one. But even after we finish step one, we can look ahead and maybe even begin to prepare ourselves ahead of time for what we're going to need to do for step two. It's easy when the process is linear. It makes us more comfortable. It makes us be able to plan and to prepare to know what's coming. And we can also replicate it for others. We can say, this is the path that I took. This is, these are the steps that I took. And all you have to do in order to achieve the same result is to follow the same chapters in the same order. Now, the downside to approaching things as being linear in nature is that it doesn't take into account the particularities of a situation. It doesn't take into account the 3D nature of life. It, it doesn't take proper appreciation of context. Instead, it tries to minimize or erase those things as much as possible. Now, there are a lot of people who take comfort still, who, who still insist, no, things must go a linear way. Diff certain forms of religious faith love a linear approach to things. It's simpler. It requires less effort. And all it really ends up entailing is to insist to all that this is the way that things need to be. And that is a comfort for some, but for others whose context and circumstances does not lend itself to so easily following that linear path, it becomes oppressive. It becomes limiting. It becomes something of a box 
that only seems to shrink the more others insist. No, this is the way it needs to be. And then, of course, systems like that, systems that insist on a more linear approach to life and a more linear approach to faith, when someone pushes back, when someone else says, you know what, this does not work for everyone. This does not take into account the varying, the varying circumstances at play, the varying aspects and factors that can crop up in people's lives. Well, then one is deemed a heretic or unfaithful or disobedient. Only the linear way is the right way. No writing chapters out of sequence is allowed. Only the path that drives through more stoplights is acceptable, not the path that takes you past the cows. And how small of a world does that end up creating? How small of an experience, how limiting to experience, how limited of a view of all that is possible in this great big world that God has created, does that make for us a linear worldview at all costs and in spite of all variations ends up limiting life as we could know it. I'm currently reading and enjoying a book entitled Trains Jesus and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. It's been a very enjoyable book. I was sucked into the title as soon as I saw it. And and it's it's been it's been a very very interesting look, not not only into the the faith and the life of of Johnny Cash, but 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 also of course his his, his the way his life story intersects with what he tried to accomplish as a musician, and originally. And if, if you have seen the movie Walk the Line with 
Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. There, there's some of this is portrayed. It, it's it's a different accounting in this book, slightly different than what it portrays there. But you'll you'll have that with different artistic renderings of Cash's life. But one of my favorite scenes in that movie. And one thing that I was looking forward to reading more about in this book is Cash's audition scene for Sun Records. Now, Johnny Cash wanted to be a gospel singer. That's what he originally set out to do. And so he had written some gospel songs, some songs about faith. He had also written some other songs in the Air Force that were markedly different, at least on the surface, from gospel. But, but his main goal was to sing gospel. So a big part of his audition for Sun Records were these, these songs about, that, were, that were explicitly about faith. And the Sun Records representative was not very engaged by those songs we see we see in the movie there the, the the monologue by the record executive in the movie is is my one of my favorite parts of that movie because he says everyone has heard these songs before everybody hears these type, types of songs on the radio with the same words and the same tune they they hear that all day long do you have anything else? Do you have anything that's real? And so, both the book and the movie show that at that point, Cash turns to some of the songs that he wrote in the Air Force, including one entitled Folsom Prison Blues, which is a song about being an inmate in this prison and how life is passing along outside without him and how despairing he is and how regretful he is and how every day is the same. And this is the type of song to the record executive that is different and unique and says something real. And it turns out that a lot of other people, a lot of listeners, also were taken by this type of story that he tells in songs like Folsom Prison Blues. Cash never really truly gave up on being a gospel singer, and throughout his career he sang a lot of gospel. He recorded lots of gospel songs, recorded lots of his own renditions of hymns. But he was also invited frequently to sing to inmates in various prisons, including the namesake of Folsom Prison Blues. Why is that? It's because the inmates there heard their story in this song. And so he went to play 
for them. And he probably sang plenty of gospel songs as well. But there was something about the stories that he told in his music that reached, that engaged, that found an audience with the people who heard their experience in his. And to me, even apart from the explicit hymns that Cash wrote and sang throughout his career, Cash ended up being a gospel singer also because of songs like Folsom Prison Blues. Because those are the types of songs where people were able to connect, to hear something of themselves, and maybe even to hear something of God's presence with them. This was Cash's route. And it was a different one from the standard one, the linear one that a lot of people would have preferred. And yet, it ended up being just as effective for a certainly different population than what a lot of people write for or expect to connect with. Perhaps it is time, it is past time, to let go of this linear thinking, to let go of this insistence that life and faith are meant to be set along a singular linear path. It would be better, I think, to view life and faith more in terms of a spider web. You think about a spider web, the way that these are constructed, if you pick one thread of a spider web, the whole rest of the web is affected. And depending on what happens, the whole rest of the web is changed. And so you may have one experience in one part of the web, and that will affect the experience in another part of the web. And so you go down there and you deal with that experience, and then it will affect another experience in a third part of the web. And the circumstances for the whole thing continue to change and continue to evolve. But it is the particular context of the web not that is not uniform instead it is a unique thing that not only we construct for ourselves but that is constructed and changes for us and with us and so it becomes a necessity that if it doesn't seem as if one way makes sense, to take another way that does. 
And maybe that one way is going to be more scenic, and maybe that one way is going to be slower or longer, but it will still turn out to be the way that is right for us. And so, here is, if you need it, permission to let go of that linear approach and to think instead about a web. A web that is dynamic, a web that is changing, and a web that takes into account the ever-evolving existence of you. Thank you for listening to the Coffeehouse Contemplative Podcast. I'm Jeff Nelson. You can find more about my writing, including all of my books, at jeffreyanelson.com. You can also find me on social media, Jeffrey A. Nelson, on Facebook. And I'm at Bold Roast Rev on both Twitter and Instagram. Have a great week.